Welcome to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. Starting a company allows you to be back in control. The weekly show that brings together military spouse and veteran founders who are doing remarkable things in the business world. I can't imagine there's anything out there stronger than the bond that military and veteran entrepreneurs have. We'll hear their story, the story of their business, and lessons learned. Joy can override the worries and depression. Here are your hosts, Carmen Nazario and Josh Carter. Good afternoon. This is Carmen Nazario. Uh, happy Friday, everyone. I am your host this afternoon uh, to the Veterans Founders Podcast Show. Our co-host, Josh Carter, was not available today, but I am happy to do the show today, and we want to welcome today John Gazard, who is a co-founder of the organization called Good World. Uh, hi, John. How are you today? And did I pronounce your last name correctly? Yeah, Gosford. It's, uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yes, we're, we're looking forward to hear your story, John, and I know that you are an Army vet just like me. So That's, um, uh, that's correct, yes. Yeah, so good old Army. So uh, typically, John, I like to always get uh, the stories on our veterans. Uh, I always find them quite interesting. I, I think our audience does, too. Typically, I like to ask our guests where they're from and what led them into the military, and then you can talk about your journey, um, uh, you know, your after the military, uh, but uh, yeah, I'd love to get some details um, of your time during uh, your time of service, what you did. So yeah, you can start us off. Sure. Uh, I think uh, not an uncommon story on, on my military uniform side. I came out of, uh, of high school in the Washington, D.C. area. I went to, to college up in Boston at Boston College, and I didn't have uh, enough resources, nor did my family to uh, put me through BC. So I was looking for ways to subsidize, uh, you know, the tuition there. And the people that were offering me the most money was the Army uh, through the RTC program. They offered me a four-year scholarship. And, uh, you know, to be honest, I, I didn't, I couldn't spell Army. I didn't know anything uh, about the Army or the military. I didn't aspire to go in. Uh, and so I started looking at it very closely when I saw that this was the only opportunity I really had to go to Boston College. And so uh, I ended up doing it. My father was actually uh, did a couple of tours uh, during during Vietnam, uh, so he was pretty supportive of that. And over those four years at BC, I I got to know a lot about the Army. And when the end came, I decided to try to go active duty because I realized that I probably wasn't qualified to do much uh, out in the world. And and the Army was willing to give me you know, 40 people uh, to, to be responsible for and uh, and give me a paycheck. And it sounded like a pretty good deal to me. I only ever planned to stay in for that four years and then, you know, do something else. And uh, somewhere along the way, I got distracted. And 22 and a half years later is when I finally uh, left the military. Uh, I spent my last six years in the Pentagon wearing a suit a lot more than I was wearing a, um, a, uh, a uniform. Uh, and so I was working on the counterterrorism side for Secretary Mike Vickers and uh, in the special operations and counterterrorism side uh, as a deputy director uh, for him. And 
you know, I spent a lot of time in places like Pakistan and Yemen and, uh, and East Africa. Uh, and, uh, it was, it was when I was really in the, in the thick of that, that, uh, a few guys that I had taught economics with at West Point mid career had already kind of gotten out at 20, uh, on a more conventional path. And they had an idea for a startup and they reached out to me, uh, when I was actually in Yemen one time. And, uh, I realized I hadn't been home in a long time, the better part of a decade. And my sons were, I have four sons, they were growing old, uh, you know, getting to that high school, college age. And it seemed like a, a good opportunity to, to come home uh, and change tracks. So I kind of made a very uh, abrupt decision. Uh, I came back and, and that's how I ended up getting into the, the tech and entrepreneur space. And, you know, the four of us uh, we're, we're good friends and former colleagues, but we had no idea what we we're doing, but we managed to make a go of it. So, so, um, going back to Boston college. So what did you major in Boston college? Yeah. So I'm not proud of this, but I had, I ended up a political science major because I had already had four, I think, or five majors. Uh, I kept switching. And when I tried to switch my major from political science to economics, they told me it was too late. I had changed so many times, and it was, I think, the second semester, end of second semester of my sophomore year, they told me I couldn't change anymore. So I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, <laughs> I ended up going to Georgetown later in life, again, thanks to the Army. Uh, they sent me to grad school at Georgetown to uh, to prep me to teach at West Point, and there I, I focused on public policy and economics in my master's studies, and I took it a lot more seriously that time. But uh, at Boston College, I think I wasted, um, you know, some experience. Uh, there was there were great professors there. There was kind of leaders, leading thinkers in a lot of places uh, at a Boston College. But I um, I was very unfocused back then. Well, it sounds like you got a well-rounded education at, at Boston College to me because it never hurts well, to, you know, the explore Jesuits are, all of these. You know, they're all about uh, challenging authority and they were questioning authority and uh, about mission and service. Uh, and I had a great experience. I mean, I uh, one of my four sons actually graduated from Boston College, and he's actually now uh, at the uh, his Marine Officer Basic course, and he's on a, a flight contract headed to Pensacola to be a uh, an aviator uh, for the Marines. So, uh, and he went wow. to BC as well. So, we're uh, we're big BC people in the house. Wow. So, so you have uh, four sons. So, um, is that what you mentioned? Is that right? That's correct. Yep. My oldest is in Worcester. He's an environmental scientist working for the state of Massachusetts, uh, helping them eradicate. Uh, right now, the project they're working on is. Something about the, this uh, species of insect that's uh, that's destroying a lot of trees. So anyway, he's he's an environmental scientist uh, in Worcester, which is about 45 minutes west of Boston. And then I've got uh, one son in, in the Marines right now, Marine officer training. And I've got two sons that are still in college at Northeastern University in Boston. Um, one is uh, in a nursing program. The other is in a, a pre-med program. So they're all uh, engaged during this uh, crisis. Oh, that's good. So during your military career, it, 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 were you, uh, it seems like you did quite a few uh, different things, but overall, what was the focus of your um, uh, service in, in terms of um, the field that you worked in? Yeah, so I, was I came in as an armor officer. Nope, I came in as an armor officer, and uh, 
you know, I did, uh, you know, back probably, uh, you know, 93, 94, 95, like pre Bosnia years, uh, we did very kind of conventional things. We were, you know, uh, you know, I was tank platoon leader, a tank company executive officer. You know, we fired our tanks on the ranges. We did field exercises. Uh, we did do a, an operational deployment to Kuwait, a kind of show of force, you know, on tanks. But when, when Bosnia kicked off and then, and then Kosovo, and my wife and I at that time went to Germany with just our oldest son at that point. And then our, our next one was born almost immediately after we got to, uh, to Germany. At that point, Bosnia had kicked off in, in Kosovo, and I, I did a deployment to Macedonia, and then um, a deployment of about 10 months to Kosovo. And there, we weren't using tanks. We were on, um, you know, kind of in back then, what we called turtle shell, not really up armored Humvees yet, but armored Humvees. And we were a lot more like infantrymen. We were on patrols on these mountaintop uh, checkpoints, and we were on mounted and dismounted patrols out of trucks in Kosovo during that time. And then post 9-11. And, and what time was we that? Out. Was that, what, what time, uh, when you went in, what year did you go in? Um, the so I was commissioned in 1992, right at the end of, uh, um, I guess I was commissioned maybe in May and I went to, to school starting in October. Uh, the armor basic course in Fort Knox. And then um, I reported to Fort Carson, Colorado in the spring of 93. And we went to Germany, I think, at the end of 95 and uh, did a Macedonia deployment in 96, did a Kosovo deployment. Uh, that was the 96, 97, I think 98, 99 or 99 uh, was the Kosovo deployment. Mm. So, and then 9-11 um, happened after, uh, in fact, I think it, it happened when I was getting ready to go to West Point and I actually got cut short. I did two years at West Point teaching uh, and then left early. I got picked up early uh, for major in CGSC and, uh, and I left quickly. My family stayed back at West Point and I went to CGSC at Leavenworth and and we went actually back to Colorado, and that's where I took over uh, pretty quickly after that as an S3 of a, um, of a task force and did a few Iraq deployments. Um, and there, you know, not a lot of tanks. We're, we're a lot like infantry uh, out of uh, gun trucks and, and dismounted patrols. So uh, you mentioned that when you um, went in the military, as an armor officer, you immediately had 40 people assigned to you. So you stepped right into a leadership role. Did you feel prepared for that? Uh, you know, I don't think the institution didn't prepare me. I just think I wasn't prepared. I was, you know, probably like a lot of us aren't, but probably especially me, I, I, I was not particularly mature. Um, I understood it was serious business, but, um, yeah, I, I don't think I was well prepared, but that's another thing that I do love about the military, uh, is that it's, a, um, you know, they give people the room to succeed and fail. And, uh, you know, I found my style, uh, pretty quickly cause you had to, otherwise you would, you know, get moved out and somebody else would get moved into that. So, uh, I think that the, the program and, you know, my, my course at Knox and 
the people that I worked for prepared me well. Um, but me personally, I probably was not as prepared as uh, I would have liked to have been. I was pretty intimidated by the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, I like what you said. You found your style. What was your style or is your style? Well, you know, this is something that a lot of things in leadership, they're not specific to the military. They're just, you know, they apply to leadership of any type of organization. And one thing that I've found is that, you know, the, the people, not even the people that maybe are directly reporting to you. So let's say as a company commander, you know, it's not just your lieutenants, but like all the way down to the lowest private, maybe somebody that you don't spend any time with. They they can figure out if the leader, if the commander in this case is, um, if he or she is trying to be something that they're not. And I think you know that's a mistake that a lot of leaders make um, for for the right reasons. I mean, a lot of people are trying to do the right thing, and they try to emulate somebody that they work for, that they really respect and they think has a great style. But if it's not your style, it doesn't work. And so, you know, if you're not kind of a co-op type of leader uh, and you try to, to be that way and you put your arm around the guys and, and have that relationship, it comes off as, um, as, as not authentic, not legitimate. If, if you know, you had a, a boss who was, you know, very kind of strict and regimented and maybe a little bit of a you know, raise voice a little bit to motivate people, but, you know, work for him as a great style. And, and that's not you. And you try to emulate that. Uh, it's not going to work. It's going to fall flat. Like the, it, it's not that the lieutenants will still follow you. They don't know any better, but the private will sniff it out. It, it's not authentic. Uh, so I think that's a mistake that a lot of people make. And so I was very fortunate to have a couple of platoon sergeants early on that, you know, took me aside and, you know, drank a lot of coffee on the front slopes of tanks and they, you know, taught me about life. And, you know, that's, I think where I found my style. Um, what, what you got to do is, is go with your strengths um, and bring those to the table. And your, your organization is going to appreciate you for that. And they're also going to kind of appreciate that it's authentic. So um, yeah, I, uh, I found my style and I, I, I was lucky enough to work with some people that told me, you know, not to try to emulate anybody else's style, like take, take what you got and, you know, try and get to the, the highest potential of that. And so for me, I was kind of a co-op guy. I was more like a, you know, down in the dirt guy. Like I love joking around with soldiers. I mean, that's, I don't miss the military, but I, I really miss, you know, some of those like late nights on no sleep or, you know, just screwing around in the motor pool with, uh, you know, with soldiers. I, uh, I miss that all. The camaraderie, yeah, yeah, and and that was um that was good. I appreciate you answering that question. Typically, you know, when we get into business, uh, the business and your, um, we talk about leadership a little bit. But the truth of the matter, you expressed it real well. You know, you can't cookie cut leaders, and 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 uh, I appreciate you sharing that. So, uh, so you were well prepared then um, for the future in terms of leadership after all of those experiences, and so you ended up being 22 years in the military. Is that correct? It's about right. I think I was a little bit over 22. And then right away, uh, like you were sharing a little bit earlier, 
you um, had some buddies that you were talking to, and 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 you conceived the business during that time. Was it this business, Good World, or was it another one? No, it was the uh, it was the first company, uh, and there was a guy named Joe Joseph Kotzer who had been at West Point teaching kind of in the same cohort at the same time as myself and Craig Cummings and Steve Carroll and myself. And, you know, we had had, uh, we were kind of like-minded back then about, uh, you know, things, business, the, you know, economics, and they looped around and, you know, the three of them had already kind of conceived of the idea uh, that would become, it's called Ride Scout. It was a, a smart cities play. It was a tech transportation uh, platform. Uh, and they had kind of the philosopher kings between the three of them, uh, you know, big vision guys that wanted to just be out there and talk about changing the world, but they didn't have uh, kind of a roll up your sleeves. How do we, you know, numbers guy, like how do we, how do we make it sustainable? How do we get the revenue? You know, how do we put the models in place? Um, and so they reached out to me for that and I had no idea, uh, you know, what we were getting into, certainly didn't know how to run a, a startup, didn't know a lot about tech. I was working with kind of the bleeding edge technology that existed in the world on the, you know, in this kind of counterterrorism job that I was working in, but, you know, my own personal phone was still a flip phone uh, at that time. And, yeah. um, you know, I didn't understand smartphones and apps and, uh, you know, at all, really. Uh, I think the decision for me was more about doing something that after I did a little bit of research, I assumed would probably not make it. But in that six months or however long it took us to try and push this thing and, and for us maybe not to be able to raise money or for it to fail, that would give me time and space to figure out what the next chapter looked like. And that's not what happened. I mean, we just little by little kept raising a little bit of money, a lot of friends and family. There's a lot of people on our cap table. Uh, and then we were very fortunate. It was, you know, I don't think we deserve a lot of credit for this. The timing was very good for the idea, you know, that, that Joseph had. Um, the, the story that we were able to tell, four veterans, you know, starting this thing. Um, we, we looked bigger than we were. And the capital market at that time, uh, you know, in, in 2014, there was a lot of fear of missing out in the VC community. Uh, there was a lot of, of startups being overvalued and christened unicorns. And there was a lot of, uh, you know, LPs in those VCs that were screaming, like, why did we miss this deal? Why did we miss this deal? So there was too much cash chasing too few deals, especially out west in the valley. And... Daimler Mercedes, which is the uh, the company that that acquired Ride Scout and gave us this like amazing exit, uh, I think you know there was a big ocean between us, and they they thought we were bigger than we were, uh, and we went through about three months of uh, diligence with German bankers, which is not fun. I wouldn't recommend it. And uh, <laughs> and they acquired us at the end of uh, 2014, beginning of 2015. It was uh, it was an amazing ride, and it, it just the timing was was perfect. The idea that Joseph had and that we tried to put into place was, was great. So I'm, I'm not downplaying that, that the idea wasn't good, but, uh, but we were pre-revenue. I mean, we thought you know, we were not, uh, we were, we were probably not as valuable as, uh, uh, as Mercedes pinned on us, but, uh, but it was a great experience for us. And then, you know, with that a little bit of money, 
that maybe we could look at, you know, my wife, Lisa and I, all of a sudden, when we're thinking about kids going to college and, you know, some other things, we could address those things. And, you know, it gave me the opportunity. Uh, my wife is uh, still a government attorney. She's actually a retired JAG officer, 20 years. Uh, oh, wow. You know, so she was in the <clears throat> Army as well. Whole time, yeah. And it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was very difficult because I was, you know, I was gone a lot. And that was pretty disproportionate, uh, um, you know, of, uh, of kind of responsibilities. I was, I was pulled out and gone a lot. Um, but yeah, she, uh, continues. She's a government attorney right now, uh, in Dodia and, you know, it, we had a little bit of time and space. So she had this great job. She was, you know, getting her, uh, military retirement and disability. Uh, I had a, a retirement and, you know, I, I said, maybe I'll try to, to do one more thing, do something else. And that's when I, uh, Dale and I founded Good World in, in 2015. And I didn't think that we'd still be a seed stage startup uh, in 2020, but we are. But uh, we're, we're, we're turning the corner now. There's good things afoot. It's been a long road for us. So, so in 2015, that's when uh, you, uh, you and the co-founder, uh, well, you're the co-founder and the founder started the uh, Good World then, right? That's right. So I met Dale when we were still, we were actually going through diligence with Daimler uh, for Ride Scout. And Dale was, it was her and an intern and her laptop. Uh, and she was working out of a, uh, an accelerator, started the accelerator space called 1776 in Washington, D.C. And that's where we were based out of. And so I, she introduced herself and she you know, knew a little bit about Ride Scout, and she was asking me for some advice about fundraising and basically like corporate governance. So she had this brilliant idea, uh, but she didn't have any corporate governance around it. She didn't have any financial instrument around it. You know, she wanted to turn the idea into a company, and she just, you know, she didn't know exactly how to do that. So I started meeting with her, I think, once a month. Uh, and, it, you know, I was kind of outlining, here's 10 things to do to turn this into, you know, a company. And here's kind of the order that I would recommend you do it in. And the more that I got to know Dale and hear about her idea, the more I just started thinking about it and about how big of an idea it was that she had. So after the acquisition, you know, she came to me and said, so are you now like free? Like help me, help me launch Goodworld. And it wasn't exactly that clean because obviously, you know, post acquisition, there's requirements from the acquiring company. I was by named in the MIPA. But uh, but I did find a way to negotiate my way out of that in the near term. And in 2015, uh, I did. I agreed to do it. And, and Dale and I launched Good World and haven't looked back since. Wow. So this is a good um, uh, point to just uh, take a commercial real quick, John, and then we'll come back. This is uh, really interesting. So I want to pick up where we're leaving off right now, okay? CPA Dudes, where accounting is never boring. Their price is not based on time. Instead, customers decide what to pay them. They don't charge you for sending invoices, phone calls, emails, texts, or meetings. They just get the damn job done. Find them at cpadudes.com slash startup radio. Today's episode of The Veteran Startups is brought to you by Publicize, a deconstructed PR subscription service which generates effective visibility for your business. For instance... 
media relations. Publicize handles all communications with the media and any content required to do this. Press releases, editorial pitches, etc. And they offer a wide range of PR products and abilities out of which you can construct the PR package right for the future of your business. Check them out at publicize.co and tell them Carmen and Josh sent you. Welcome back, and we are talking to John Gazart, co-founder of Good World. So we were just getting uh, digging into how uh, you help launch Good World in 2015, which is not too far, far back. So tell tell us what Good World is about. What is the uh, vision, purpose? Um, of your company. So I think Dale's original idea was, you know, she was working uh, in philanthropy sector. She was working for Rockefeller Foundation. Uh, she's actually originally from New Zealand, but she was working for the Rockefeller Foundation here in the United States. And she was, on, on a professional basis, you know, she was working these big galas and they were uh, pursuing large donors, uh, large high wealth individual types of donors. And that was kind of the bread and butter of the Rockefeller Foundation. And it was doing great work, but that was the channel that the money was coming in. But she was having a very different personal experience. You know, Facebook, and this is kind of pre-Instagram, but Facebook and Twitter, uh, you know, mobile and social was becoming a bigger and bigger part of people's lives. And it was where she was living her life. And it's where she was finding herself inspired to support causes, but there was no easy way to convert that inspiration into, you know, doing something meaningful, like make a donation. You'd have to like, um, the ice bucket challenge is a great example. So people are inspired by the content. You get challenged by somebody in a video and, you know, maybe they're kind enough to supply you with a link to the LS association to make a donation. But if you hit that link, you have to fill out like over 20 fields of information and pull out your credit card uh, to make a donation. So there were 700 million pieces of content created as part of the Ice Bucket Challenge. But when you, and, and they raised a ton of money, it's amazing. They did $120 million in, uh, in, in just about eight weeks at the height of the campaign, which is absolutely amazing. In fact, Pete Frady's, uh, who's you know, kind of at the center of this, uh, his ALS is what started the campaign. His mother started the campaign. He's a Boston College baseball player. Uh, so I love the campaign. They raised a ton of money, but that $120 million, if you do the math backwards, it was less than a 2% conversion rate. So what was happening is you had all these people that were inspired to make content, uh, but they weren't actually donating and it, it's because it was too hard. So, you know, Dale was trying to figure out a way, uh, and find a, a technical partner that could help her find a way to let people convert in the moment, Right. Everybody was trying to figure out how can we take people that are inspired on social media and redirect them to, you know, basically a, a, like a web page or a payment form or something where you could have a secure payment experience and complete a donation. And, you know, she thought that premise was flawed. Like, why can't you have a secure, social, fun, inspiring payment experience in, in the same stream that you're inspired in the first place? Uh, and so, you know, one of the, the first products we created was, Hashtag donate, which allowed people to instantly donate with a comment uh, on Facebook, on Twitter, 
you know, now on Instagram. So, you know, for me, if I wake up in the morning, grab my smartphone off the nightstand, flip through my Facebook feed, you know, see what my friends and family are up to. I see a, a post from USF because uh, I follow them on Facebook. I'm inspired by that post. Maybe there's a call to action there. I comment hashtag donate 25 and I immediately get a, a reply on Facebook from UNICEF that says, hey, John, thanks for your $25 donation. And my credit card's been charged and that money's from Bash and ACH and sent straight to the bank account of UNICEF. I get an email receipt, uh, you know, in my, in my email box for, you know, tax purposes or whatever for my own personal records. And I just keep flipping through my Facebook feed. It's as easy as that. So that's where we started on social media. We branched out now. We have nine different features on the Good World platform, uh, including some that we picked up when we made an acquisition. We acquired uh, a leading charity tech company called Cheerful uh, in December of last year. And so we're a bigger team now. Uh, we've got more features and we're partnered with some of the biggest companies and charities in the world. We've got over 3,200 charity partners, um, including UNICEF and Save the Children and American Heart Association, a lot of dog shelters and, you know, small like community poverty charities that maybe you've never heard of. Uh, and some of the biggest corporates in the world too, uh, like MasterCard and PayPal. That's amazing. How how did you do that? I mean, can you break it down a little bit in steps? Because the timeline, you know, to accomplish all that is, is just really streamlined. It's I more think. streamlined than you think because the first three and a half years of this, you know, kind of four and a half to five year journey, uh, we wasted. Uh, I tested a couple of hypotheses for too long and spent too much money on them. Uh, you know, we thought that if we gave nonprofits a, a tech platform that they could tap into new channels, that they would they would drive enough traffic themselves that we could just take transaction fees and make it a big numbers game. And the truth is uh, that activation isn't enough to sustain us. So, you know, we raised money from venture capital right out the gate. Uh, NICA Partners, Fenway Summer Ventures, Camp One Ventures in the Valley. And, you know, I, I spent all of that money uh, testing hypotheses that ult ultimately were wrong. And, you know, we almost folded a couple of times running out of money. And, um, you know, I, I, I wish I could say this is how we did it. And it was, it was you know, methodical and systematic, but it wasn't. Uh, I didn't. Again, I found myself uh, running a company, and I didn't quite know what I was doing. Uh, and we were very fortunate, again, kind of like Ride Scout, um, that, you know, before we completely ran out of money and completely ran out of the patience of our investors, we, we pivoted. We didn't pivot the product, but we pivoted our go-to-market strategy. And we said, we can't rely on, on the nonprofits themselves. We can't put the fate of our company our for-profit company in the hands of nonprofits. We have to, you know, find another way to go to market. And so we said, we're going to find, we're going to try to partner with big corporates and give them uh, a technology that can make them, you know, maybe a little bit different or a little bit better than their, um, their competitors. And they already own a huge distribution market. They can expose us to that. Uh, and that's how we ended up going through the MasterCard StarPath program that we applied to. And we went from start path company students going through, you know, kind of a MasterCard accelerator program to 
partners, strategic partners, uh, within about 20 months. And we're actually going to have some huge MasterCard news to announce in the coming days, maybe even, uh, in the next, probably in the next week. Can't talk about it right this second, but, uh, you know, we're just getting in deeper and deeper partnership with MasterCard and they were so values aligned with us. We presented at the MasterCard annual board meeting last year and RJ Banga, the CEO of MasterCard is, you know, it's not just a PR thing to talk about doing well by doing good. Like he means it, he holds his people accountable to it. And, you know, we love, we love everybody at MasterCard that we're working with and we're trying to help them be the leaders in philanthropy from a technology perspective, but also the leaders in helping people make, you know, giving part of your routine consumption. You know, it, it can be part of when you just go to the store and buy anything, there can be a charitable component to that. Uh, and so MasterCard has been such a great partner for us and it's exposed us to like such a huge market. And now we're starting to see the revenue from that. So we're finally turning the corner uh, as far as being, you know, sustainable for ourselves and, and hopefully soon, you know, getting our investors back some, some returns. Wow. That's, that's wonderful. So if, so pretty much the, um, so run me through an incident, like you mentioned, people can find you, you're, you're looking at, uh, something on Facebook, and then um, there's some icon in there to um, to make a donation. Um, how does that work? Because I'm looking at your website right now, but the the donations don't happen through your website. They happen by way of you can the donate social... through our website. Yeah, you can. Pardon? But it's. You can donate through our website, but that's right, not most, right. But, not the most right. people run into Good World. Most people that run into the Good World technology, they're probably not aware that Good World's powering the experience they're having. Most of the people that are donating on Good World, they're responding to a call to action from a charity or a corporate partner like MasterCard that's given them the opportunity to donate to a cause that they care about. Um, and Good World's the engine behind it. We're not... I We're not see. trying to get the credit. We're not trying to be out front with our brands. We want right. to be the innovative, bleeding-edge tech that powers seamless transactions when it comes to philanthropy. And it's not a small market. $410 billion in the United States alone uh, last year in, in charitable donations to 501c3s and c4s. So it's, it's a huge market. And the online portion of that, while it's only – you know, a small part of that right now, about $31 billion, still a big number, that's growing at 20% year to year. So inside of that $410 billion, that $30 billion is growing much faster, uh, 20% versus about 5%, 4% uh, on, the, on the total giving. So, you know, just like collateral mail started to die in the face of email, uh, you know, we're betting that digital giving, online giving, is going to, you know, eventually encompass the market much more than, you know, traditional check writing. Right. So let's say, uh, let's say, like, um, how do they find you? Let's say it was a church, uh, because you know how churches have online giving. Can they use your technology uh, or contact you our, so that you uh, you provide? Can you hear me? I sure can. 
Okay. Uh, I'm sorry, because I, I just realized I had moved the phone, and sometimes when I move around, um, I realize that I'm not talking into the phone. Uh, so uh, would this work with church giving? Like right now, people are doing, uh, uh, like for instance, I am I do church online on Sundays instead of going to my church. So, um, and typically, you know, uh, if if you give, you know, I give while I'm at church, you know, I write a check and and put it in the offering. So, um, so can a church contact you? How does that work? The background scene in terms of these organizations identifying you as the technology behind their uh, uh, giving. Yeah, a church or a nonprofit can go, you know, any nonprofit, uh, but churches are, are 501s as well. Any of them can go to goodworld.me, and they can actually sign up. They don't need to contact us and, and talk to us personally. They can actually onboard themselves uh, for a lot of our tools. Some of our, you know, more sophisticated tools, maybe text to give or, you know, branded giving pages and things like that, you know, do require us to jump in and help. But you can go to goodworld.me. You can register your company. It doesn't cost anything to register. And um, churches, actually, on the social donation side, are one of our, our biggest uh, partners. We've got an evangelical church that's raised a million dollars in hashtag donations on Facebook. And this particular organization and their pastor uh, obviously is an inspiring person. He does these Facebook live videos and, you know, the call to action is pasted right there on the bottom of his video, asking people to, you know, comment, hashtag donate and any, and any dollar amount, any number, you know, that they can afford uh, to give. And he's incredibly effective, uh, about a million dollars in hashtag donations uh, from this one uh, evangelical uh, church. So yeah, it's great for churches, but it's great for you know, all charities. And it's as right. good as your reach and engagement on, you know, with your followers, whether it's on social media or your email campaigns, you know, however you connect with your donors digitally. Uh, but if you can, if you can inspire, then we can give you technology that can convert it. So, so how do you, how did you get, when you started, how did you, did you get all these customers? Yeah, so I mean, it started out like reaching out to friends uh, and more Dale's friends, uh, you know, the other half of the founding team than than my friends. You know, she came from the world of philanthropy, so uh, you know, it was yes. asking like people to bet on her uh, mm-hmm. and like please like help us and participate in this beta. And you know, it was a lot of like just really asking favors. And you know, our first product was I'm not gonna lie, it's a little clunky. Uh, it wasn't the greatest experience, uh, you know, and it took us a while to learn how to be, you know, as slick and elegant uh, and experiences we've created now. And, you know, those were lean days, but we were very lucky that, especially with me coming off the Ridescott acquisition, I was able to put together a price round with VCs that gave us a lot of money. And so we didn't have kind of the gun to our head from ramp, you know, and burn. And we hired a lot of people and we tried to... Um, you know, experiment a lot. Uh, and we had the luxury of doing that. So, yeah, I mean, it started very slow. But uh, the, prop, the value proposition is clear because I wanted to get about 500 nonprofits together with, you know, I was hoping for a few thousand donors that we could get enough data to try and figure out 
how much product market fit we had. And we ended up with 1,500 nonprofit partners as part of that push in the first 14, 15 months. Um, so the value proposition was clear. And then it's a very incestuous industry. So, you know, if one nonprofit's having success with our platform, they tell their friends about it. And their friends also are in the nonprofit uh, industry. And so, like you mentioned, church, when, when this first evangelical church really started having success, we started getting all of these, like, Baptist preachers and churches reaching out to us and saying, like, we see all this success from this particular you know, organization. Like, how do we how do we get the same capability? And we're like, just go sign yourself up and, you know, and start raising money. So, um, you know, we were fortunate and we, and we picked up on that momentum. Oh, I, I love your story. Um, and it just, I mean, you've, you've talked about, uh, you've been so transparent about everything you've talked about. What would you, um, what would you, say would be the biggest thing you've learned from this experience? Um, what would you offer our audience uh, in terms of this was, you know, an aha moment or uh, the biggest thing you've learned? Um, I, I mean, I guess for this audience, we're talking about, you know, veteran founders. Veteran uh, founders. Yeah, maybe. maybe and, and, go ahead. And whoever else is on it may not necessarily be veterans. Yeah, yes. but you know, I'd say like on the on the veteran side, I mean, one thing that you know, I think post nine eleven, uh, and this is you know, this is an opinion that I hold that's somewhat controversial. Um, you know, there is kind of service has become sacrosanct uh, in you know in our society from a political perspective, and you know, I'm not saying that like service shouldn't be respected. It absolutely should be. But I think we're setting our, our transitioning veterans, uh, and, you know, whether they're retirees or whether they're, you know, people that have, have served for, you know, a tour or two and then, you know, are, are moving into the civilian world. I think we're doing them a disservice by this big message that, that veterans can seamlessly step from service into the business world. And that somehow they're more qualified than somebody that hasn't served. Uh, I don't find that to be the case. And I think anybody that spent a minute in the military will tell you that, that it's pretty representative of the population. There are, there are people that excel and that do great and are great leaders. And there's also people that aren't you know, in the military, just like in the rest of the world. And a person that's very successful in the military is probably a person that's very likely to be very successful in other endeavors because those things that made that person successful in the military are the same things that you need to be successful in, let's say, the business world or, or, or other civilian endeavors. Similarly, if, if a person, you know, was not that good, you know, in their, in their military service, they're probably with some exceptions, of course, not going to be that good, you know, in, in transition. So I think what's really important, uh, you know, for our transitioning veterans is that we find like, what's, what's the fit for them. And I don't think that we should be telling, you know, corporate America that if they're not just like hiring a veteran because they're a veteran, that somehow, you know, there's something wrong with them. You need, you don't want to set up a guy for failure 
by hiring him or her for a position that they're not qualified for. They're not going to excel in. Um, so, you know, picking somebody just because they have military service when they're not qualified to do the job, that, that actually does a disservice to the veteran. Uh, and so, um, you know, I, I think post 9-11, we've had a hard time balancing showing respect for the service of our veterans and setting them up for success in the business world. Um, but again, that's just, uh, that's something that's become clear to me along the way. And we've certainly hired our share of vets uh, in the two companies uh, that, that I've started so far. Right. So, um, but, but I, I believe you were talking about two different things there. You're talking about the veterans that come out and start a business right away. And some folks may think, oh yeah, they're, they can, they're, they're good to do that because of their military background, but that's not necessarily so. And I'm agreeing, or if you're just and I'm agreeing them, right? with you. Or if you're just hiring them, even if they're not coming out and starting a business, if they're coming out and saying, you know, I was a squad leader or a platoon sergeant or a platoon leader or a you know executive officer, then ergo, I will be a great VP, at, you know, at Amazon. Um, you know, that may be right. true, but it also may not be true. Right, right. No, I, I, I got your point there. Uh, but they, there are other great qualities about veterans in terms of hiring them. They're, um, they work. I mean, the ones I've hired, I, I own a company too. They, they work hard and they have just good uh, ethics and, and, and they've had a lot of experiences. Um, uh, great experiences, especially if, you know, the veterans that have traveled or have been in. I, I've got this girl that came out of the Navy that spent 10 years, and she had uh, just a lot to offer us, uh, more so than she probably even knows. But then I do get your drift in terms of not making assumptions because they were in leadership in the military that they're going to just perform to that standard in in the commercial world because it's a whole different ballgame. And there are just, there are absolutely things that I think you would probably agree with me that are things that, that you take with you from the military that are helpful to take with you. Um, you know, the things you're talking about, work ethics or just ethics in general, integrity, like uh, loyalty. There's a lot of things that are kind of integral to successful military service, especially as a leader in the military, that translate very well. But there's also, you know, maybe as many, if not more things that you have to leave behind. The hierarchy that, that we put a premium on in the military um, and the protocol associated with that hierarchy, uh, unless you're going to work for, you know, a defense contractor where everybody's retired and coming from the same farm, uh, that certainly doesn't translate well in, in the startup world. Like, in fact, like you're not going to make it, you got to drop that. Uh, you know, if you think that you can, can kind of, you know, forcefully direct people, uh, and, and instill, you know, some sort of disciplinistic fear into them. Uh, that's not how a startup world works, especially with engineers. Like, you're not going to get an engineer to lift a finger, uh, you know, if, if you take that hierarchical approach. And so you have to learn what, what are those characteristics 
uh, and what's that persona that I gained in the military that applies outside the military, and what are the things that I have to leave behind? And if you don't, if you don't get that right, it can be a very frustrating transition. I agree. So certainly those are some good talking points that, you know, make a good takeaway for this podcast. So um, I um, really want to thank you for, uh, John, for uh, participating. I just realized it it went by fast. I mean, uh, I love the story, and I wish you all the best. And um, let's tell our audience how they can find you. I'll let you tell them that. Uh, I like to be uh, accessible to military or non-military. So I'm John Gossard. I'm easy to find online. The company's Good World. Uh, the, the site is goodworld.me.me. Uh, and, you know, my email is john at goodworld.me. So, you know, try to be accessible uh, for anybody. I, I try to, to do a good job of answering anybody that reaches out if they want to you know, raise money for causes uh, or if they want to, you know, talk about transition or talk about the you know, any of these veteran founder issues, I, you know, I'm happy to talk to anybody uh, that I can get to. Well, thank you, John. And thank you, all the listeners. We'll see you again next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Have a great weekend, everyone, and take care. Support for today's episode comes from our friends at Ruby Receptionists. At Ruby, they've mastered the art of turning rings into relationships. Their team of remote receptionists answer all of your calls live as if they're right there in your office. Together, you and Ruby transform your phone into the sales engine it was meant to be. Start setting your business apart today. Visit callruby.com forward slash startup radio to sign up or better yet, call them at 833-861-8100 and use promo code StartupRuby. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.